feel obligated to say something like that. And most Arizonans are from the Cincinnati area anyways, if you go back 50 years, so I guess go Bengals. Um, so we'll get started here. Just to also deal with the uh, high church elephant in the room, um, the spiritual reason for why I'm wearing a clerical collar is the idea that what I'm about to say is not my words, but it's ultimately God speaking to you. That God is meeting you here tonight with his word, and he's giving you his grace. And while that's true, and that is the spiritual reason, the practical reason is that clerical shirts are a lot cheaper than blazers, um, and a lot cooler. So there we go. Let's, uh, Let's get into our gospel reading. This is Mark 2, 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Say a word of prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock, our redeemer. Amen. Well, it is risky business to talk about the kingdom of God. It's risky for one because it is politically foreign to us. We proudly, as Americans, don't have a king or a queen. And all the ones that we know about are more of just kind of quaint than anything. Uh, We probably know more about Queen Elizabeth's corgis than about any decision of significance she has made in the last 10 years. Um, And the other reason why talking about the kingdom, of course, is risky is because it's not necessarily a good thing to have a king either. You can just about hop into anywhere in the historical books of the Old Testament and right, one right after another, you read about bad king after bad king. There's like two and a half good kings in the whole thing. <laughs> but there is also another reason why I think speaking about the kingdom of God is risky business. It is this, because the way that God rules over his kingdom, the way that he reigns, is upsetting to us. That is, when we understand how it is that Jesus uses his authority as king and how it is that he reigns over us, 
Our can-do attitudes are exposed. Our conquering mentality is proven to be a sham. And our ability to overcome our weakness and death comes to nothing. See, Jesus reigns as neither your cheerleader nor your taskmaster, but as your healer. And this is the main truth that we see tonight, that Jesus reigns by healing, and he heals by forgiving. Now, from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he has been healing the sick and casting out demons. Because the Gospel of Mark moves so quickly in his telling of the accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, we get this picture as if Jesus comes to John, he's baptized, he quickly moves out into the wilderness, goes through that, announces that the kingdom is here, grabs some fishermen on the way, and they're thinking, well, uh, the benefits of the fishing company are good, and a pension is nice, but nothing compares to eternal life. And then they scoot right over into the synagogue, and there they are, and boom, Jesus casts out a demon. And we're only in verse 28 of chapter 1. And we read this when he does that. He says, and at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding regions of Galilee. So we begin to imagine the hope, the anticipation that is spreading in this region when in verse 1, Jesus returns home to Capernaum. You see the sick, the disabled, the tormented, and the sinful are all wondering, just as you are probably wondering. And I am wondering with our sin and our shame, our weakness, our disability, who is this man? And what does this mean for me? Does this king really take an interest in me? And this leads to our first point. The paralytic and his king and his friends find the kingdom of God. In verses 1 and 2, we see that the intrigue, no doubt, uh, some people are here looking for a sign. Some people are here looking for a show. And some people are here looking for salvation and healing. This intrigue, though, has produced this crowd in this house. And this is potentially Jesus' own home. So this place here is jam-packed. And as you can probably imagine, homes at this time are quite small, even smaller than what you can get in Tucson right now for under $300,000. But they would often be as high as four stories. And so you can kind of picture uh, the biggest room was always the dining room in the top level, which we see this in Acts 1 when Jesus and the disciples are together for the outpouring of the Spirit. And so they're probably in this upper room. And we see in verse 2 what's happening right now. Jesus was preaching the word to them. You see, Jesus' mission is always one of preaching. And we cannot separate this fact from the reality that he is the king. For it says in Luke 4, 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. This is why I was sent for this purpose. This is Jesus' purpose. And notice what the content of his message is. It is good news. Not a message of good advice for the well put together or the well thought of. And it's not even a message of good old judgment for the ungodly as much as some of the Jews may have liked that. No, just before these words in John 4, Jesus has announced this message of his kingship. He has used the message of Isaiah, which is in Luke 4, 18 through 19, when he says this, 
It's our Old Testament reading. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So it is because of this message that we have these rumors of grace, these rumors that lead these friends and this paralytic up onto the roof, these rumors of gracious words, as they're called in Luke 4, rumors of grace that meet this paralytic in the midst of his plight. Where else is he going to go? Where else is this paralytic going to turn to? So they climb up on the roof, and this is no small feat, as I'm sure you can imagine. Uh, With these four stories, I kind of picture something, um, you know, because every house in Tucson is one story, which is a good idea. But I kind of picture something like the old pueblos that are up on, like, the reservations and stuff. These small homes that are four stories, you can imagine them climbing up there with a bed and a paralytic on them. And so they get up there, they tear through the roof, and they lower him down. And you can kind of picture this happening slowly, right? That sunlight's breaking in, um, pieces of roof are falling down. Uh, I think preaching up here is hard enough. I can't imagine if this thing was coming down. Uh, But slowly this friend is lowered in. And he comes face to face with the kingdom embodied. He comes face to face with the king who is gentle and lowly in heart. And this king looks into his eyes, his eyes that are desperate, his eyes that are hopeful, yet probably also a little bit embarrassed and also a little bit afraid. What is this king going to think? And yet this king looks him directly in those eyes and gives him these words of grace. Child, your sins are forgiven. Any doubt about what this king feels about him? Any embarrassment or questioning or even wondering, uh, is he mad about the roof? All of this is absolved away in these gracious words. Such words give joy to those who need them, but they always offend those who think that they don't. And this leads to our second point, that the most abled among us question. Jesus, full of compassion and healing, speaks these gracious words of forgiveness. Words that, are, that for the sinful and the needy prove to be a refuge. But for these scribes, it rocked their world. The weight of what is happening in their hearts can be seen in what this word for questioning means. It's not, you know, this questioning of like, oh, well, that was interesting. Uh, I wouldn't have said that. But it's this kind of deep reasoning about what the implications are of what Jesus has just done. Again, he has fried their minds. And so, who does he think he is? What does this mean? Maybe some of these scribes are even beginning to get it. And we're starting to wonder, could this be the Christ? But Jesus will have none of this. He demonstrates that he is not only the all-wise servant of the Lord, but he is also the all-knowing Yahweh. And so he asks, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? 
You see, here Jesus sets us up to observe an important truth about the kingdom and disability. In his question, he demonstrates an intimate link between the need for healing and the need for forgiveness. By showing compassion to the paralytic, but also a note of judgment to the scribes, Jesus exposes how it is our ability, our self-sufficiency, and our self-righteousness that stand against his kingdom work, rather than qualifying us for it. In other words, the paralytic is not just an object of Christ's compassion, though he is. But he is a contrast to the scribes, and it's a warning to those who think they have it all together. You see, this is one of the reasons why God's people who have disabilities, whether it's physical, mental, emotional, uh, developmental, whatever it is, are a gift to the church. Because one of the ways that they testify to Christ's kingdom, the prophetic witness, if you will, of those with disabilities, is they testify to Jesus' preference for our inability rather than for our ability. It is as one author puts it. The church, unfortunately, has bought into what he calls the cult of normalcy. That is, that in our relationship to God and in our relationship to each other, we have bought in too often this idea that our relationships, our foundation, is our abilities, our strengths, our giftings, rather than what unites us as those who are at the feet of the cross. Therefore, when we feel that we cannot lead with our weakness, when we feel that our weaknesses must be a hindrance to us, then Jesus' grace begins to sound offensive to us, just like it does to the scribes. It is no longer a joy-giving message. Theologian Marva Dawn puts it this way when she writes, Even as Christ accomplished atonement for us by suffering and death, so the Lord accomplishes witness to the world through our weakness. In fact, God has more need of our weakness than our strength. What a line is that? Just as powers overstep their bounds and become God's, so our power becomes a rival to God. By our union with Christ and the power of the Spirit in our weakness, we display God's glory. You see, when it, when it is that we come face to face with our weaknesses, when we come face to face with our inability, our sinfulness, our shame, we are not less qualified for Jesus' kingdom work, but we are the perfect recipients for it. And this leads to my third point, that the kingdom is here. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus wants all who are there to know his authority. And this word for know is not just a plain knowledge, um, but it is the type of knowing that leads to a new state of being. That is, you move from the state of unbelief into the state of trust. And so, this authority is not some kind of theory. It is not as in ages past where it was unrevealed and hidden in mystery 
but it is now on earth. That is, the kingdom has arrived with this Jesus. And it is, again, not any old authority, but it is the authority to forgive. And this is not just any old forgiveness, because the original audience would have known a thing or two about forgiveness. But this is forgiveness on earth. That is, this forgiveness is here. It is now. It is in this moment. It is in the midst of the paralytic sin, in the midst of his shame, his guilt, his disability, all of it. This forgiveness has come right here, right now, and it is staring him in the face, right in the dining room. And this forgiveness is right here and right now in the sanctuary. Because the king is here, and it is for you that he has come. There's a modern move, not to get into the weeds, but there is a modern move in some circles of theology to separate the forgiveness that Jesus brings, the justification of the ungodly that he works for his sake from the kingdom of God. But there is a problem with that when we separate Jesus as king and, re- and ruler from Jesus as redeemer and savior. And the problem with that, if I can say it boldly because I have a clerical collar on, uh, is that it's not in the Bible. You see, the reality is, is that in the New Testament, we see these notions of rule and redemption coming together. Now, if I were to do a PhD in New Testament studies, and this is extremely hypothetical, because if you saw my Greek grades in seminary, uh, you would say, as they say where Charles and Julie are from, uh, bless his heart, he tried. Um, but maybe one of you smart folks, if you want to pursue this, uh, I would commend to you to study this subject. Uh, take the book of Romans and examine the royal language that Paul uses that we often miss and see how that's connected to his doctrine of justification. And because it's a PhD, you get to spend all of that time on one verse because that's what good PhDs are all about. Uh, And it's this one verse here. It's Romans 5.21, which says this. that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness. That is, dikaiosune, or justification, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you see what this means? Do you see that Christ's reign is not an abstraction, but it is through declaring the ungodly to be righteous? It is through the announcement that your sins are forgiven, that you have full pardon. That is how Jesus is your king. And this is why that when Jesus sends out the apostles and he gives them the keys to the kingdom, he has given them the power to do what? To forgive sins. That is how the door to the kingdom is open. And yet, by this same power, Jesus heals this paralytic. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. Uh, If I were to make 
book recommendations from the pulpit, I would think that that has some kind of authority close to that of the Pope as far as what you should do. Um, but if the book clubs want to read a book, I would recommend The Coming of the Kingdom by Herman Ritterboss. You don't have to do it soon. It can be like five years from now, but just at least put it in the queue. Um, because this book is so helpful on understanding the miracles. One of the things that Ritterboss is getting at is that miracles are not just a sign of Jesus' power, though they are, but they are the very beginning of the restoration of all things. You see, that is why forgiveness and healing are so married in his ministry. Because what forgiveness inaugurates, the miracles show what the full consummation will be. It will be complete restoration, body, soul, and all of creation. This full redemption is always the result of the power of this good word, that sins are forgiven. Again, they are never separated. But what has been inaugurated on the cross will be fulfilled in your complete healing, your complete restoration. And it's by that word of grace. And it is why Ritterboss writes this in his book. He says, his word is not only a sign, it is charged with power. It has the salvation which it defines. It is not merely a word, but shall accomplish that which he pleases who speaks it. That is why at bottom, there is no difference between the word which Jesus casts out devils and his preaching of the gospel. You see, Jesus' word of grace, his word of forgiveness, is what heals you. It's the very power of his reign. It's the very power of his kingdom and his kingship is that word of grace that comes to you. And you see, when all of this is accomplished, when you have the entire kingdom by grace, through faith, when it comes to you in that announcement of your uh, justification, of your receiving mercy, of your receiving forgiveness, when you know that you have it all now, even if you don't see it all yet, then there's only one way you can respond. You can glorify God by saying, we never saw anything like this. So in conclusion, this healing kingdom of Christ and this power by which he heals, body, soul, all of creation, is not a mystery for you to speculate on, nor is it an accomplishment for you to obtain. But it is the very same announcement that Jesus gave to this paralytic. This is where the power is found in the kingdom. It is the announcement of your sin, your physical, your mental, your emotional ailments. All of them will be healed. It is all through the same word that Jesus said to the paralytic. Child, your sins are forgiven. Amen.